You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Anita Mani, who's edited Women in the Wild, Stories of India's Most Brilliant Women Wildlife Biologists. Hi, Anita. Hi, hi, Manjula. So, Anita, you know, just tell me, just let's start with a simple question, you know, how, what was the genesis of this uh, book, you know, the idea for this book? I think that the idea for the book was really triggered uh, by, by meetings with wildlife biologists, you know, uh, I have some friends who are in the field. I've watched other people at work. I've read about their work or know of them through others. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always been both um, you know, deeply admiring as well as in total awe of the work they do. Because uh, the thing is that like, I'm a hobbyist bird watcher. And, uh, and as a hobby, it takes so much effort. Like when you go to the Northeast where uh, typically in summer, the days are really long. So you want to get the most out of your visit. So you, you're up at 3 a.m., you're out in the field by 4. And uh, because if you're in a mountain landscape, the weather is conducive to you being out, you probably won't come back to your tent till about 6, 7 in the evening. Yes. So, and this is, and this is a hobby. It's not mm-hmm. a, and so, but then these are people who are doing this for work, uh, for research. Uh, in uh, in remote areas, in difficult conditions, uh, working in ecosystems and contexts that they didn't grow up with. Yes. yes. And um, so, and I think uh, it takes a lot to do that. I think it takes much more. It's 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 it takes a lot of drive and passion to to do that. So I've always been fascinated. And I think uh, so. When I started Indian Pitta last year, um, I, the the kernel of this book was in my mind, and then. Uh, and then, I, then I thought to myself, why not focus on women in the field? Because uh, if you add gender as another filter to this uh, to this uh, scenario, I yes. think uh, it, it throws up even more challenges and opportunities. And yes. those who and those who are able to succeed in spite of all of them really shine. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that, in a sense, was the kind of thinking or the the, the thought process that led to this this book. Hmm. Okay, so you know, when I was reading it, and I like the first two uh, two chapters, you know, the first two stories are like so tragic, you know. And I was wondering, is the whole book going to be like this? Because they all seem like you know, I mean, these two women they're pioneering, but their stories are are really sad, you know. I mean, in many ways, though their successes are huge, yeah. their personal story is like is terrible. So thankfully, the others. <laughs> you know they are, they are. <laughs> so, so I was happy towards you know as I went through the book but tell me about you know uh, the first one Jamal Ara you know it's such a fantastic I mean it's almost like reclaiming history because one hasn't heard about this person at all and then suddenly now everybody knows about her so let's talk about that you? Yes, it was really, you know, uh, one of those, uh, the only uh, the only chapter which is purely reconstruction from secondary sources. Mm-hmm. Because uh, at, in the case of uh, the second chapter, which is on Turtle Girl Vijaya, 
uh, Zai, who wrote the book, worked with Vijaya. So there was yes. first-hand experience. There were colleagues. Mm-hmm. So um, and then Vijay's sisters are still around. And in mm-hmm. fact, I I had an op- opportunity to meet one of them in Delhi, and I obviously Zai has been interacting with them. So there was mm-hmm. family. There were people whom she had lived with, worked with, whom one could rely on. But uh, in the case of Jamalara, uh, it was like you know, for lack of a better term, it was like literary forensics. Yes. Because uh, because you know, uh, and I think one has to grant it to Raza that he did an incredible job in pulling that off. I think his uh, his training as a, a historian, because he is a wildlife historian, mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, really came in very handy because uh, he had the um, the drive and the energy and the skills to be able to sift through these pieces and i must tell you uh, chance played a huge role too i mean this is you know he talks about it in the book he yes. was just randomly surfing the net when he saw this interview with maduka and then she happened to mention that her mother was a bird watcher uh, named jamalara and then the pieces uh, fell in you know so he found up purely by chance and i found raza purely by chance too because i had reached out to him uh for a more general conversation I, I i've been a great admirer of his writing and i simply wanted to connect to see you know uh, tell him about my imprint and see whether we could find a way to work together and uh, so i started telling him about the books that we were working on and by, and by that time uh, women in the wild was already in progress and uh, so i told him i said we're working on this anthology of essays on women and wildlife biologists so he said anita really that's so interesting and it's such a superb coincidence because i'm writing this long form piece on this long lost bird woman and i said are you telling me you're talking about jamalara and he says yes how did you know i said but i've been hunting for someone to write the jamalara story for a long time and no one knows enough to be brave enough to make to to, to write that piece so wow. it turned out that he was actually writing that piece for another long form website so i had to convince him to uh, to turn that idea around and do the piece for me and to do another piece for them which of course would be very good but because my need was very uh, urgent and very specific so once having found somebody who was already researching jamalara i just couldn't let it go but i think raza was also excited about it and i think um, and i think i'm i'm so pleased with the way the essay came out and Uh, i was so thrilled to be able to lead the book with it because i think it sets the tone for yes. what is to follow yes and it's a beautiful yeah. piece it's really a beautiful piece and it it kind of just brings uh, i mean i don't know it brings her the time that she was working in the internet came in only in the well, mid 90s right so before that you know one was aware of uh, you know there were so it's very easy to imagine at least for people who are of a certain generation of how people can just vanish you know because there were no yes. it was just a post right so i was thinking about that when i was reading reading this book you know when well, that's very true and because her, her only legacy is in the printed word and and getting access to that printed word is not so straightforward she wrote in journals which are not in in popular circulation though she was a prolific uh, radio broadcaster and i think uh, uh, that's that sort of you know um, i mean that i think that's probably why her legacy is so wide and varied because she um, sort of experimented with so many different formats you know and which is incredible because she was pretty much uh, schooled only up to a certain level and she was taught english and uh, field skills and bird watching 
very very late in life so i mean for someone to do to bootstrap her own life like that is i think it's just amazing i mean uh, to do it now would be tough for her to have done it in the in the mid 1940s i would i think it's nothing short of an astounding achievement yeah and you yeah, you're right i mean the absence of uh, we had no social media nothing to maintain digital records of that person right so you have no sense of who she was at all and even the photographs that this the the, the photograph in this book uh, is probably the first published photograph of jamalara oh okay a lot of people didn't know uh, how she looked yeah yeah you know that black and white photo the yes, grainy photo yes. and and even this was something that that, that maduka found for raza and mm-hmm. it actually let me tell you also this this is ha- uh, this happens to be the photo on her on her mother's old gas booklet what yes that was i mean because we needed a close up photo with some details so the only appropriate photo that we could immediately find was this photo mm-hmm. and uh, and a lot of people didn't know she was a woman who messaged me saying that oh we've had her book for the book for years watching birds but uh, we did we thought it, jamalara was a man and and, and not just bird watchers academics who have referred to her work in 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 scientific journals have also referred to her as a man so you know this is so i mean so the photo must have given everybody a bit of a shock like you know so <laughs> it's like you know you're actually looking at a lady so yeah i thought means yeah really interesting uh, it was interesting her life was interesting her work was interesting and putting the essay together was also super interesting and raza seems to have really got into it i mean he has built a relationship with madukan all that comes out as well So, yes yes and, and i think there's some the shared there's a shared uh, history in some ways because um i think his family is also uh, uh, worked in the forest services and i think uh, there are connect there, there are people whom both he and madhupan knew you know who were contemporaries so i think that creates a bond so i think he writes with writes on jamalara with a level of intimacy Yes. Uh, which i think comes from all that yes yeah. yes i think this makes a really great essay and even the next one you know the one on on viji is it's lovely yes i think it was the most point it was the most po- yeah it was the most poignant essay i think because I, i mean each time i read it i would get really upset you know and each and i i, I and and the, the the team that worked on the book at jagadnot i think uh, i think everybody had tears in their eyes by the time they were editing this essay it had that impact on everyone so uh, because the story is is such i mean you and then you look at viji's photograph you see her face uh, it's it's it seems simply awful that we would lose someone like that and she was a brilliant researcher you know who had all the right qualities to make a brilliant field biologist the kind of work she did i mean i grew up in chennai in the 80s and 90s and she grew up say 10 years before me in the 70s and 80s and i cannot imagine doing the kind of things that she did you know and i would and i come from a fairly liberal family but yeah. uh, you know to be able to travel so freely to just take off and to go looking for specimens to work with the uh, you know to work with local communities uh, i think that was uh, i mean she must I mean, my, my greatest regret is that we would never be able to see her or be able to meet her it would be some it would be incredible if one could actually meet and interact with someone like this mm. and she's on the cover right that's her on the yeah, cover yeah she's on the cover Actually, that's her on the cover it's a beautiful picture i mean uh, i saw this picture many years ago mm. many years ago and i've been reading about her uh, ever since whenever i could find something about her i would read about her i've been fascinated with her character 
myself for years and it was this photograph that hooked me okay so i am so there's a very personal connection to discover so i'm i mean i am so happy that it, the photograph was uh, was something that we could use on the cover because i think she stands for a lot of the qualities that um, that a lot of the other biologists featured in the book also stand for you know tenacity uh, research integrity uh, a folk clear minded focus on work on getting the job done um, mm. you know all that stuff yeah mm. but um, i'm i'm this talking about tenacity they seem to need a lot of it you know much yes, more <laughs> i think so <laughs> i think you need a lot i mean it is, i mean it's just it's just i mean i uh, uh, the shweta uh, shweta paneja's essay on divya mudappa and the work they have done to restore those rainforest fragments in the uh, in in valparai i mean the kind of difficulties that that that, that team has gone through and yeah. to be able to dig into that bucket and to find the strength to be able to hold on and to keep going right through yeah. all of that i think it's in it i it's sounded exhausting to me even just editing the copy so yeah. imagine i mean i will so can you it's 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 conservation is a very long game and i think uh, given all the challenges uh, that one is up against uh, you know it, you have to be a really solid optimist Mm-hmm. and in that case i mean suddenly it's so unpredictable in the sense that uh, the, in in that uh, case of the rainforest uh, thing the company it's chain uh, you know selling its stake what can you do like you're such a small yeah exactly company. yeah and exactly unlike in a lot of other uh, business scenarios the, the the external factors are so strong you know yeah. i mean some piece moves somewhere and you get impacted right Mm-hmm. so yeah and and you know, it's it may be your life's work but everything changes yes yes yeah. and so, in their uh, case yeah. you know, they they talk about like watching uh, um, you know saplings for 20 years and, and that's your life that really is your life's work right it's not that's even like some work. small couple of years here and there so I'm, no, I'm, and that, and I think I think she's underscoring a really, really important point about conservation. That that you know, the the deepest rewards come from playing the long game, and mm-hmm. about come and about long term commitment to landscapes. Because uh, you know, change in in these contexts does not happen so fast, right? You mm-hmm. need to keep at it. And you need to have a very clear goal in your mind as to where you as to where what you want to achieve, right? and um, yeah and and dig in your heels and stay the course i think uh, all these women demonstrated i think at many levels mm-hmm. also this thing about uh, being involved with local communities right that has uh, helped them in many of the cases that are in the book this involvement with the local people as opposed to i mean earlier uh, it used to be just what one read you know it used to be the scientists going out there and working and they just focused on the project but not realizing that the people living in that particular space are also integral to the success of it right so yeah and i think yeah very much you, so if you look at what say nandini talks about in her essay and i did the piece on nandini so i spent a lot of time we couldn't ever meet because uh, she was traveling for field work and uh, she was in many places at the same time uh and uh, so we had we caught up to multiple conversations and emails and things like that um and uh, she's and she says that you know she said the uh, and what when she's talking about how uh, she went and she met this dfo 
at pake and like all well meaning people you come in saying this has to be done that has to be done and uh, i think tana tapi it was so turn on kol kar dikhao he said do it and show me you know it's very easy to talk and uh, i think that's the whole you know the colonial mindset of coming in thinking i've got the perfect solution sitting in delhi you know i can then deliver uh you know this is what you need to do to fix your problems i mean I, it's like a those x machine are landing on stage and fixing everything it doesn't work in real life yeah, you know yeah. so and i think uh, that example sort of brilliantly demonstrates it and i think her own work is interesting because for the same reason that her, the success of her work is because it's it leverages the power of the community so much and if you look at uh, and not just in conservation in terms of uh, uh, in terms of a conservation linked project or research but also in terms of a campaign like save molem that she helped to spearhead and uh, i think that campaign succeeded and she spoke about it a lot when we chatted i think that campaign succeeded because of the spirit of participation at all levels Mm, no yes. uh, you know it uh, people came together doing different things if one group was uh, petitioning uh, online to social media another mm-hmm. people were then other people living in the areas that were affected by the uh, by the project were walking up to their local mlas and asking them what are you guys doing we not for this you know mm-hmm. or another group was in uh, uh, t- uh, sort of talking to more people within the community and spreading awareness uh, some people were talking to the media you know so the different people doing different things but it was very clear that this is what a local community in situ in the place that was being affected by the project was saying no we don't want this mm-hmm. you know so you know, i think the uh, i think the campaign succeeded because of this entire participative spirit and i think that's a fairly good analogy for the kind of work that nandini wants to do that is really about people communities working together and participation even within scientific teams yes. you know it's not about you know it's not about one researcher coming in and doing it it's about teams it's about your field assistants it's about uh, you know the entire team that makes up that project huh? mm-hmm. the, the spirit of participation is really important uh, and and that is a large community you know mm-hmm. and they everybody has to play a role for the for a project to succeed so mm-hmm. I, i mean i'm not saying this is the model everywhere and no i am no biologist myself to be able to make such judgments but one could see the importance of that in uh, the kind of work that she was doing you know and her research interests have also been at the nexus of uh, communities conservation and wildlife so you know it also strikes me that sometimes i mean we we are on such a high growth trajectory you know as a nation and and you know all these um, changes are happening and sometimes it seems bleak the environmental future i mean one shouldn't give in to uh, negativity but you know sometimes it's almost difficult to think that we will you know at the end of our lives our natural wealth will still be there to like hand it over to the coming generations you know it seems like we become like other advanced nations who have depleted their wildlife completely so you know what about the do, do those thoughts occur to these women they seem so confident about getting things done you know well i think that's probably the reason why uh, we ended the book with a chapter on the newer generation of biologists mm-hmm. and then you look at the diversity of work that they are doing yes uh, and uh, you know working from say from the fishing cat to turtles to uh, working with cave dwelling animals there's a whole variety of yes, work yes. that's happening or working with bioacoustics so i think uh, uh, the i think there is uh, a, a upsurge of interest 
in natural history uh, at every level from the point of view of photography from the point of view of hobbies uh, bird watchers moth watchers butterfly watchers from the point of view of uh, of people uh, who are teaching or nature education at every level there's a lot of interest and that's a positive sign you know and uh, and I, and these are uh, these are people uh, whose constituencies are the natural world Mm-hmm. and i see the, and we see the number of such people increasing and the fact that there's a and and, and the reflection and the, and the diversity of work uh, happening by young biologists is a reflection of that interest mm-hmm. and the overall spirit so which i think uh, would make one optimistic that not everything not not everyone's interests are aligned only in one direction mm-hmm. that there is uh, there are people working at various levels Uh, to bring about change or to conserve species we don't know whether all these will be successful but it's not for lack of trying mm, yeah yeah and talking about that cave thing you know i that was fascinating i mean i hadn't even i hadn't heard of these vengudla rock caves you know and i've grown up in bombay so i was like quite fascinated like uh, that this woman is going out there and it's a field that's i mean who know i hadn't thought about this you see caves and all yeah. you don't think there are specialists yeah you know it's like so so niche really and so fascinating yeah but because it is a niche stuff there are specific species that have adapted for that niche like those yeah. like swiftlets nest in these caves right so yeah. they are a species and uh, and it's yeah it is very fascinating and i think uh, I, i think danusha she's the one you're talking about i think uh, has made it her life's mission to to understand more about the uh, natural history that that lives within these cave systems so mm-hmm. she's worked in the andamans she's working in uh, with the vergula rocks archipelago area so i mean yeah that's that's what i'm saying i mean there there's there's such there's such specific interest and i'm saying this because when we were this when purva and i were talking about the chapter purva is a writer who wrote that chapter mm-hmm. uh, it was very hard for purva i think to figure out who to the few people she would profile because we didn't want to make it like a shopping list of 50 people with one paragraph on each mm-hmm. because but the astonishing thing was there are 50 different people you can write about if you want to Yes, some yes. people are working on more some people are working on more some people are working on marine systems i mean there's a do you name it and people are yeah, yeah, yeah people are working on all of these yes. so so i mean which sort of uh, uh, underlines the point i was making for the previous question as well in terms of optimism you know and where do we go from here yeah. mm-hmm. okay ha danush uh, danusha uh, kavalkar okay yes yeah that's right yeah, yeah. so also yeah caves and karst landforms are amongst the most neglected and understudied ecosystems in the world yeah that's true i guess you know no i'm saying yeah i i mean i agree with you yeah that's even in i think cave exploration is not something that too many indians do i think meghalaya also has these fascinating caves with um, uh, you know i think both from the point of view of uh, rock formations and uh, <coughs> and and looking at um, geological history and also from the point of view of natural history mm, yeah one just thinks of maybe bimbekta caves for those you know line drawings and you know and maybe elephanta and places like that where there stone temples but this is something yeah. else all together so totally i think it sounds quite uh, interesting yeah it'll be interesting to see how and what more she does in terms of uh, what other species they are able to map uh, that are that have carved out uh, Uh, you know ecological niches within these cave systems mm-hmm. yeah 
because if there is swiftlets in there that means there are a whole lot of species we don't know about because if there's one species there must be like lots and lots you know i'm not i wouldn't expect huge numbers because it's a very specialized niche uh yeah but and swiftlets have been known for a long time to nest in cave systems but there also be different species of bats for example yes. and uh, yeah I, i'm not a, i mean i don't have too many too much in depth knowledge about what other kinds of species but the science tells me that uh, the nature of the niche and the way it's organized demands a high level of specialization yes. so yeah we should yeah. bound to see if not if not new species at least we will probably learn interesting behaviors and adaptations in the kind of animals and plants that live there and specific microorganisms yeah. is what i was Possibly. thinking yeah mm. yeah absolutely so this is also great the jokesies uh, um and this whole idea about you know instead of going straight to those audio fossils the whole idea of the sounds you know capturing sounds of nature Yeah. yeah. No, but I think bioacoustics is becoming pretty important for ornithology. There's a lot of work happening mm-hmm. uh in India as well. There's researchers working specifically in this field. Uh vocalization is a very important aspect of uh, bird research. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it's uh, I think we yeah, should see some interesting work coming out of India I think in the sooner than later and then Apuja's work is uh, I think yeah. like she talks about the mapping acoustic landscapes yes. you know as a way of recording data yeah it's a really interesting is uh, a whole project that's going on which she talked the project vani uh, mm-hmm. which has researchers in different parts of the country all using acoustics in different ways wow and they just yeah. and this particular paragraph they speak of mating territory individual identity incoming predators manipulation deceit and grief and many other things crucial to their survival and propagation of their genes deceit and grief as well wow yes <laughs> yeah it's 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 yeah exactly but but vocalization is extremely complex i mean and birds have calls uh, you know for each one of these various uh, emo- i wouldn't say emotions that's very anthropogenic but uh, for each of these uh, different circumstances so so i'm so i think listening can tell you sometimes a lot more than looking because it sometimes especially if you looking at dense forest ecosystems it's harder to spot birds but it's far easier to listen to them and to listen carefully then you have an idea of what's really going on in that habitat so when we talking talking about you know uh, in one of the essays i think it's that uh, you know the the canopy uh, the one that we were referring to earlier where there's a mention of how more and more and this is something everybody notices also wildlife and humans living closer to each other in the sense of i mean you know sort of uh, appearing more in each other's landscapes and how somebody else also was saying how going forward that's perhaps going to be more common so let's talk about you know the pros and the i don't see many pros but the cons of that you know perhaps <laughs> yeah well yeah because of yeah our population size i mean we are in a sense pushing up the boundaries closer and closer right to wild habitats so and interactions therefore are are but natural because uh, there's uh, our urban cities are sprawling you know you yes. know if you look at the, Uh, the the if, if you just go on nh is it nh1 or nh8 that goes to chandigarh you know i remember when we first came to delhi 25 years ago 
uh, you would see delhi then you would see sonipet panipet karnal in that order but yes. now i think it's like urban sprawl all the way to panipet there are no there's hardly any kheti or any kind of rural habitation mm. purely in yes. a purist kind of way yeah so obviously we are the, the we are pushing human boundaries closer and closer you know into contact with wildlife so this kind of uh, conflict is uh, you know is bound to happen and i think uh, and, and 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 in any kind of conflict sad as the truth is there are always going to be winners and losers it's very hard to live equitably always and yeah i think that in valparai i think and and, and in places like valparai but it's also interesting to see in in, in valparai which i've visited i've been to valparai though no i haven't wasn't there for this piece but i was there for for a, for a visit for a few years ago and it's a, it's really a habitat where humans and wildlife really live in close contact i mean you driving through tea gardens you would probably see elephants you know wandering through the tea gardens uh, you'll see the um, you'll see the you'll see uh, the macaques lion yes. macaques are, yeah yeah because they are very they are very special to valparai so mm-hmm. yeah you see them uh, you know uh, near human habitations all the time right mm-hmm. and um, you'll see the giant squirrels and there are and there are and leopards are fairly common in the landscape yes you know yes. so in fact i, I remember that the time that i was there there was a leopard that used to come and sit on a compound wall every night so if you wanted to meet the leopard you had to basically get yourself to that compound wall because i think they were i think there was a they were all the local butchery they were probably uh, dropping off meat bits and things like that but being dumped if, if my memory is right and it would park itself there i'm not sure whether my memory is entirely accurate on the meat story but i saw the leopard so i can tell you that and friends of mine who were uh, you know who were stationed there have countless photographs of this famous leopard that would park itself on the wall you know so uh, people in valparai have been living in contact with animals for, i think for a very long time i think it's a landscape where you're really face to face with wildlife uh, mm-hmm. a lot and and we're talking about large mammals you know uh, not just birds um, mm. or small reptiles like we see in delhi yeah. so but but with tourism with more footfall uh, better roads faster cars uh, you know these interactions are becoming unpleasant for one of the parties yes yes yeah yes so uh, yeah and i i honestly don't know how we change it because uh, you know everything we do seems to bring us in closer and closer contact with wildlife so yeah. Um, there's no way it seems that we'd be able to um, you know sort of reduce the number of interactions mm-hmm. though i strongly believe that i think we need to have inviolate places for wildlife where humans have no business being in those habitats or landscapes mm-hmm. because uh, otherwise how would you you know how would you give them a safe space to to sort of procreate and to and to and to persist you know, for generations to come yeah. you know so we don't want to have wildlife zoos right we actually want to have wild spaces yes so yeah mm-hmm. so i do the kind of conscious pullback that is required for something like that uh, to be avoided um, i'm not so optimistic about that <laughs> yeah um... you know anyway talking about leopards you know that that um, this um, this essay which is which one is that unlocking the secret lives of leopards is also a lovely one yes and, uh, uh, and this her work you know atreya 
Atreya's work on uh, uh, Vidya uh, Vidya Atreya, right? Her work on yes. leopards and, and her following that famous leopard Ajoba. This <laughs> is so lovely. Yes. Know that they called him Ajoba yes. also. Grandfather yes. Marathi, so grandfather in Marathi, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I think, that was very famous, right? I mean, there's a yeah. he was like a he was a known name in Bombay, I think, yeah. uh, in those times. Yeah. So I think, uh, uh, I think her work sort of underscores how much in contact with wild populations we actually are. I mean, I think uh, the one image I always carry of that essay is of that leopard in the sugarcane field behind those unsuspecting farmers. But the leopard's doing its own stuff, and the farmers are doing their own number, and everybody's the no one's the wiser or less sad or less happy because of the way things are. I think, uh, I, I, I think as long as the balance is not tilted, people can live and uh, people have coexisted with these animals for a long time. And and leopards are as they as so as the essay illustrates, leopards are clever. They don't want contact with humans. and negative contact even less yes. so they have found their way of skirting you know human activities and human landscapes but traversing them at night and you know and uh, generally taking pathways that take them away from human contact spoke about sanjay gandhi and how it's bombay is such a paradox yes. in terms of yes. having uh, you know wild like large charismatic species in the middle of a very densely populated urban jungle her um, the thing in in that essay about where she says you know that leopards have always been uh, the the change in the understanding is that they've always been close to the human habitat right i found that very uh, uh, very different i mean also generally we think that oh they belong to the jungle and you know they're far away but then she said that uh, relocating them was causing the conflict when they've always lived Correct. close to humans actually yes yeah which is yeah which is uh, yeah. yeah right and they because they do prey off stray dogs livestock I mean that's fairly standard and yeah. i think uh, uh, i mean i remember stories from when i was growing up from from grandmothers in the family who say who you said that if you went up to the hills when in the south the hills means uti or kodaikanal yeah. at night uh, you know uh, once because there was hard everyone shut down by 8 o'clock once it got dark no one went out and yeah. uh she said there used to be a, i remember this my aunt's grandmother telling me that there used to be leopards that used to sleep outside the bungalow at night you know and she she remembers waking up on moonlit nights and actually being able to see the leopards outside yeah. so yeah they they i think as a species they have sort of are able to maneuver around the human populations a lot more and i think uh bringing that out and 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 sort of uncovering the real science is probably mm-hmm. you know uh what i think ananda has been able to capture really well in this essay yeah. yes and i remember another guy i had spoken to i can't recall his name now but he is very active in karnataka and he wrote that leopard book um sanjay uh, gubbi sanjay gubbi sanjay gubbi that's right so he was saying that you know uh, uh he was also talking about i remember leopards as being um, you know they 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 they're not like we think of them as uh, uh, as beasts but actually they much more scared of us than we are of them in many ways right yeah so. i think that's true for a lot of wildlife right i mean mm-hmm. wild animals will do the utmost to avoid human contact mm-hmm. um, conflict happens when that contact becomes unavoidable yeah yeah and there's that uh, one essay where, it, uh, where this woman talks about a bear coming right at her um like i i like the yes, I full of those 
you know those images uh, and she also says yes. that she thought this bear was more scared of her than she was of the bear so yes <laughs> yeah i think bears are i mean yeah that's that is usha lakshmi i think in somewhere up in the somewhere up in the himalayas when she was doing her uh, i think she was doing her uh, masters i think and when they were on a field trip somewhere in the higher himalaya is when they got charged by bears yeah, yeah that's quite a um, yeah it's one of the, it's one of those images that stay with you and i think usha's story had a lot of those images because she's had a long career in wildlife and i think she worked for the government of sikkim for a long time mm. and uh, so it's really an interesting example of you know um, uh, ha- sort of uh, leading the conservation campaign from within the government you know mm-hmm. of i think she's done a lot of work to promote the biodiversity of sikkim to protect their heritage so to speak and uh, yeah so it's really a long career in uh, in in uh, in conservation of la- uh, wildlife from within the government mm-hmm. yeah so, so, so that's tell- really an uh, interesting uh, example yeah mm-hmm. so tell me you know when you were putting this book together why did you choose these specific uh, i mean what was the process of putting this book together so uh, uh so that obviously i had a long list you know from which we put on i spoke to a bunch of people who are in the wildlife uh, research space uh, as well as journalists as well as some of the writers themselves to create a list of people who could feature in the book uh, mm-hmm. the list is quite a long list and then uh, i mean and uh, then the idea was okay um, another friend of mine i think uh, who was also in the conservation space i think he told me very clearly that you know uh, create criteria and i thought that was a really good way of uh, looking at it because and i thought the criteria was important uh, for me you know uh, and not just from the point of view of, of this being a, a a book you know i think it's important to be clear in terms of uh, what are you looking at and i think the the answer to that question uh, was that uh, i wanted to really have a, you know to write about women uh, who had Uh, substantially impacted landscapes and ecosystems mm. what who, who had sort of uh, changed the direction of conservation outcomes you know mm-hmm. so who, so th- in a, that was the framework within which uh, this book was planned and i must tell you that there are many more women than the 13 in the book who who tick all these boxes but because of the amount of real estate that we had uh, i think we could do we had to pick you know uh, and then we had to also had to make it diverse i wanted to have a mix of people working with different species in different parts of the country so you you, you get a real flavor of you know what are the different issues and what are the different situations that come about in a career like this and um, yeah so the, so i'm at really and this is an important thing for that i want to say that this is by no means an exhaustive list there are many many women out there whose profiles and whose work is equally compelling and interesting but uh, the but because i wanted the book to really focus on the journeys of these women not just focus on the outcome and which is why the long form uh, essay was the perfect uh, sort of format within which to do this book the one could have done 50 women in wildlife and covered lot more women covered lot more ground but then we wouldn't have been able to write long form on each of them yes you know uh, the, the the it would not have been possible mm-hmm. and that didn't suit the purpose that i had in mind i really wanted to uh, look at what was how they sort of got where they are today 
and 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 to understand that that at a level of depth and i was lucky enough to find uh, writers who knew uh, a lot of these uh, uh, the research the biologists that they were profiling many of them had known them for many years and i think it's that intimacy and that understanding that comes through in the book okay uh, now to come to this like a, a few of the uh, I, i was surprised that not all of them brought this up but many of them brought up the sexism you know on the field but uh, is it reducing or is it still as bad as you know maybe earlier but because but even I, mean, I, i i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to be able to quantify it in that sense the things mm-hmm. it more or greater but what i do know is this that uh, and these are you know some of the people talked about this are you know people who been uh, you know uh, who been within this space for several decades yes. right and yes. they have experienced it but if you speak to younger women biologists who have graduated out of you know out of colleges out of wildlife institutes in the last decade or so they are still talking about it mm-hmm. so i think uh, you know uh, these gender issues haven't gone away and i think that's how you measure something like this maybe even like working with uh, indigenous people like with tribals and all that seems to be maybe they seem to be less uh, like that is that so do, do they do you think because in in many cases uh, biologists have worked with uh, you know indigenous people and have had positive outcomes from what i can see in the book so do you think that's something that people like us experience or uh, inflict on others um i mean i i honestly don't know whether the, the whether uh, whether the whether the indigenous communities uh, are they more egalitarian are they less patriarchal uh, i'm i'm not sure i mean i think the women who's featured in the book they might be able to answer the question at a, at a more deeper level mm-hmm. uh, uh, but i think definitely what the i think vijay's example shows in a in a sense uh, that whole uh, egalitarian approach that she had to life you know uh, i think zaid writes about how she made her sisters eat boiled rice and salt because she wanted them to understand uh, the lifestyle of their domestic help you yes, know yes. and so there there's a deep understanding and empathy for the underdog mm. okay and uh, and and that, i think zaid also mentions this, that this is the same empathy and this and this equality sense of equality that also drove her relationship with communities such as erular and all the other uh, uh, forest communities that that she worked closely with you know even even during the cane turtle project she lived in the forest with them uh, there is there was the, the complete absence of that colonial approach saying i come in you know time better bigger stronger smarter that whole that whole package was just not there mm-hmm. and i think um, because because if you need go as a researcher from an institute with credentials the temptation is to be is to talk down right yes. but i think that's that's i don't i didn't see a flavor of that anywhere you know in the way uh, these women went about their work and i that's think that's true in fact some of some of the writers have flagged that you know that their sense of uh, equality of 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 democratic functioning of participation is very strong 
So yes. no, like I said, I think I mentioned this in the introduction as well. Uh, they, uh, they, I think a lot of them emphasize teamwork because equality cuts both ways. It works with the yes. communities you're working with and also with your own team. And yes. in some cases, you know, we've mentioned a list of team member names. And I think during the edit, I must have pushed back at several people saying that can we remove this long list? I mean, we don't even know. We aren't. We're not saying anything more about them. So it seems really shallow to just put in a list of names. But uh, they came right back and said no. But you know, they they I think they want these names to be there because it's really important that you know, that, that they that the work is projected as be as being a product of teamwork rather than one individual doing it. Yes. And I think that's some and that is something really that stands out. I think in 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 these profiles. And I think that's uh, I don't want to say that's a gendered value, but mm-hmm. I definitely want to say that that instinct towards. Uh, uh, that inclusive, that inclusive participation seems to come in a very intuitive way to 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 these women in wildlife. Okay, and you know, while I was reading the book, I was also thinking that perhaps you know, I mean, I don't know. One can't say what the future is, but uh, some of these, some of the biologists have uh, spoken about how you know communities like the fisher folk that they worked with. Uh, so no, no, so much over so many generations, and that knowledge hasn't been documented yet. You know, you think that's like going forward. That could be a whole entire area, right, of study. Because I mean, there's so many knowledge systems which are not in this country, which are not at all. They haven't been True. captured at all. No, so, no, absolutely not. I mean, you, you just there's just so much stuff that is just completely unrecorded in terms of customs, in terms of knowledge. in any geography yes so yeah i think that was uh, that, that was the essay on uh, divya karnad divya. and in fact i'm glad you brought that up because uh, in there she specifically talks about interacting with fishing communities in orissa that were terribly patriarchal where the women would not come out of the house at all so that yeah. answers one of the questions that you had raised earlier i think yeah. some societies are patriarchal not nece- not necessarily all uh, you know uh, such communities are egalitarian i think some are still very patriarchal so but i think the the yeah, in terms of knowledge systems there's so much that we don't document and i think that's a very startling example about how uh, these fishing communities were managing themselves using principles laid out by a prize winning economist no less you know yes, i mean yes. w- without any academic frameworks they had come to the same set of conclusions and that was i mean and i was talking about this with divya i remember her being saying remember her saying that she was so amazed that that at coming across something like this you know when you yeah. least expect it because because she being an academic had studied those frameworks was able to immediately recognize them for what they were but uh, but i think but i think that is the uh, i mean to go back to keats uh, uh, be- truth is beauty and beauty truth i mean when something is honest it's absolutely beautiful and it's absolutely clear yeah. and i think it's possible to come to that same conclusion from many different directions yes 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 and you know this this uh, particular paragraph also struck me in fact i've like marked it and said it written my god in the margins it's about this thing about uh, the fishermen from andhra pradesh coming in you know coming coming there to the local the maharashtrian uh, thing and when i spoke to the women in those andhra households they reported that they had pushed their husbands to work elsewhere because vishakhapatnam port the nearest location where they could get employment had a bar at the entrance the women in their homes would never see the money their logic was that if the men became migrant workers they would be so ostracized in those locations that they would never be able to spend the money yeah i thought that i mean i 
could not get over this i mean i think my mouth i think i draw my jaw drop when she was relating this to me she think and we both realized that this is just completely crazy and but this is the kind of you know strong women you see in the south have no problem chucking their men out to you know to social ostracism in the hope that they would give up their their drink because you know uh, these are not subservient women are going to sit at home lamenting their fates they are done they decided we're going to fix this problem if it means packing these guys off yeah you know so be it and not realizing that this migration is causing other sociological issues in terms of unsustainable fishing practices because these yes. women have no ownership of those systems right yes, yes. i mean that's the, but it was a you know that whole story was a bit of a sidelight it was yes. not central to the narrative yes. of divya's work but i thought it was too astonishing to let pass i mean it yeah. was uh, no, yeah it, it gives you an insight into the kind of small things that can have like it's like a butterfly effect have such great you know uh, effects right in all yes and i think uh, yeah and 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 the social i think it underscores the the social the importance of sociology in research yes about social systems and social structures yes. uh, because that's what's driving this which is in turn is driving you know the whole uh, way you do fish in the seas i mean it's 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 yeah like you said it is um kind of bizarre and frightening sometimes in terms of how everything is connected yes. and how you need to really uh, be clever to be able to spot the connections and ask the right questions yes yes and i think divya herself that's why she went and did her social sciences uh, studying as well and i think that that's a great i mean that's a great ins- thing for a lot of these biologists i suppose to do because if they're only going to be trained in the biology of a thing then it I mean, you spend many years understanding the social context of it as well, right? Yeah, and 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 a lot of the, I mean, exactly. And to to and sometimes to achieve the right kind of impact, you need to understand the dynamics of society and structures. So yeah, yeah. So I think it's yeah that I thought it was a very compelling uh, argument that she put forth for the way she did her, her way she mapped out her her education and you know how that's really helped her in her work. So um, yeah, and let's talk about last question because I, I I won't like trouble you further. I've loved this bit. Some scientists have poetically coined the word, term bioacoustic time capsules to refer to the collection of audio recordings made in natural habitats as they c- capture acoustic snapshots in in time of ecosystems, which can then be compared, analyzed, and preserved, and which can in the future also count as acoustic fossils. How lovely is that? Yeah, that's a very lovely line. I think. also comes because purva who's written the piece uh, yes. is a fossil fan she's a she's a she's, she's a micrographer who i think she for the photographs fossils and things like that oh, so you know so she's really uh, brought in a beautiful analogy there and which is true because these are because we are our our uh, keepsakes and our uh, fossils are going to be audio visual i think and not just bone yeah. and paper right yeah yeah, yeah. that's true yeah and so yeah i thought it is a very beautiful uh, turn of phrase in terms of uh, uh, in terms of and, and also a direction in terms of what to preserve and what to conserve yes no, uh, because uh, because in you know uh, we not uh, in india we not really too clever about preservation and record keeping and uh, you know and, and there are just things just i mean like people keep saying we stumbled on this 
kind of fossil or we stumbled on this find uh, it's incredible right i mean that yeah i know india has ha- india has had human settlements for a very very long period of time but that doesn't make it doesn't make this any less startling but uh, but it's interesting to see the present work in terms of a record for posterity yes as a and and as a very uh, deep record because when you can hear things and when you can listen to what was being said yeah you know, uh, in the in, in the language of birds and animals uh, understanding change it, it becomes another framework for understanding change right i mean for right. for future generations of uh, of what of archivists or even fossil hunters it becomes a uh, the, uh, it becomes a new uh, it becomes a new tool to decode you know in terms of how we lived our life in the 20th century in the 21st century yes yes so you know um, are you planning more like a sequel and you know like a series of this or is this it this is just going to be i mean women <laughs> no that's uh, there are plenty of uh, wonderful profiles to write yeah but i i think uh, we we'll, we i hope the book does well enough for me to justify volume 2 and and hence for i mean there are lots of interesting things to write about i think the story is far from being told and it would be injustice to not write about more of these uh, profiles but like i said um, it's, it comes down to you know uh, how uh, that this book is well received so that we have due justification to go out and do more more such books yeah no i think i think uh, the, it's co- causing quite a buzz so i mean going forward perhaps you might have to think of you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would love to do it i mean i, I i've had i mean i have I have, I have many ideas like i said we had a really long long list so there are lots of people whom we missed profiling some of them some of them were just too busy for example at the time yeah. the book was coming to get they were busy with their own field work their own projects so we couldn't find time to you know to get them to sit down and talk to us about uh, uh, about their work and life but yeah hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again the different set of women in the wild okay. okay great so for for the listeners go out and get women in the wild stories of india's most brilliant women wildlife biologists edited by anita mani it's a, it's a great read it's also a very educational one i mean you know and it's inspiring as well all these women doing fantastic things you know and in contributing in a very real way to science and our knowledge of the world so thank you so much anita for talking to me thank you manjula bye bye to stay updated on this podcast follow us at hd smartcast on all the major social media platforms to listen to more such podcasts log on to www.hdsmartcast.com